to enter a nexus of science, violence, and nonsense. Where fake news, pseudoscience, and weaponized stupidity meet full contact fact-checking and peer-reviewed ass-kicking. And as always, no bullshit allowed. Recorded live at Mosquito Headquarters in Austin, Texas. This is the Art of Fighting BS podcast. Brain chips in the trick. Chocolate lines up planetarily with the sun. Necessarily rewarding. You are fake news. Come on, man. Science is interesting. If you don't agree, you can fuck off. Let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the very first episode of the official Art of Fighting BS podcast in the year 2021 of Common Era. I, as always, am your subcompetent host, Sub Messenger. This episode starring Eric, our special guest Morgan Ballas, is an expert in firearms training and active shooter defense scenarios. I'll let him tell you a bit more about himself right now. My name is Morgan Ballas. I am the Director of Strategic Training and Planning at Campus Safety Alliance. Um, I am an emergency manager by trade. That would be my, I guess, official title. Um, But I am also a law enforcement trainer, um, an educator, and just a a lifelong learner in general. Uh, What really makes me qualified to support schools and law enforcement in this area is, is one because my family has been directly impacted um, by a mass murder incident. I've also, my entire academic career has been focused on mass violence and mass murder incidents with a, a specific focus on K-12 schools and the incidents surrounding K-12 schools. I have my master's in uh, emergency management, currently two years into my PhD within the same field. And I am also um, a nationally certified law enforcement trainer, um, a a firearms instructor in general, but specifically certified through um, NCBRT, their laser course, alert craze course, um, and the uh, NRA law enforcement firearms instructor course as well. This episode, obviously we're gonna be talking about mass violence what our schools can be doing better and what they're doing wrong along that vein. But what what got you into this? You said that you had been personally affected by a mass murder incident. Um, can you can you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, I'm, I'm from Tucson, Arizona. It's where I was born and raised, where my, my wife grew up. And um, in 2011, I was in the Marines at the time. I'd been in the Marines about seven, eight years by that point. And I was back home on recruiting duty. So I was actually recruiting officers out of the University of Arizona. Um, and in on January 8th, 2011, my mom went to the local Safeway. And at this Safeway is where Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was hosting an event. Um, and as we all know, that event did not turn out as anyone imagined it was. Um, a gunman opened fire. My mom was literally standing at the table when the violence began. Um, she survived uninjured, but she would go on to save the life of a gentleman by the name of Ron Barber, who would actually replace Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. Um, and I actually went to high school with the shooter. So for me, like most families impacted by these tragedies, just having such a, a close connection, I was just 
enamored by it. I wanted to learn everything I could um, about the incident itself. And then a year later, we would have the most horrific incident, in my opinion, in terms of a school shooting, which was Sandy Hook Elementary. And at that time, my wife was a first grade teacher. My son was in kindergarten and it shook me to my core. And then that is when I decided I was going to dedicate my life to studying, understanding, and helping to prevent and prepare for these incidents. Wow. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. So uh, first of all, um, you know, I, I don't want to say his name, but let's go ahead and say his name for the record. Uh, I think it was uh, Ger- Gerald Luffner. Is that the right? Luffner. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so number two, and actually this should have been number one, but number one is that your mom didn't escape uninjured. Um, you know, from a physical perspective, maybe she walked away unscathed, but you know, there, there are some deep things that happen there. And uh, you're, you're, you're kind of reaching into that when you're uh, also calling out these other things, um, uh, other instances that, that you've been, you know, exposed to that have, um, propelled you into the current field that you're in. Yeah, you know, you two super fascinating things there. Um, first of all, one of the reasons that we believe that these incidents are, are perpetuated and why we see such a cascade of incidents, especially one after another, um, is because a lot of these attacker, attackers are, sink, are seeking infamy, right? Um, and so one of the things that we're trying to do within our community is to not say their names. So, um, and I only highlight that because you're doing it from a, um, analyzing the event and just categorizing what it is and who was involved. So you didn't do it in, in any negative manner, but it's, it's important to understand that the impact media has, um, in potentially influencing future shooters or attackers. Um, So I just wanted to note that. But you are 1,000% right. My mom did not unscathe. Physically, she was unharmed. Uh, But I never thought as as a combat veteran, I would be counseling my mom on PTSD or the harms of self-medication. I never in my life thought I would be there. I mean, a lot of us are in the military, you know, because we're like, hey, we want to keep the violence on the other side of the ocean. We don't want to see that here and have our families exposed to it. So it was an an interesting moment for me to come to that realization. But you're absolutely right. She wasn't unharmed. I want to I want to jump in on something that you you said there. You said that um, the reason that these incidents seem to stack one on top of the other in succession was because these, these killers wanted to be infamous. What, what is, does the research look like um, in that area right now? Well, we know from doing specific case studies or looking at what's known as legacy tokens, if people are leaving um, some sort of video footprint or written diary, um, that a lot of them, they, for whatever the reasons might be individually, at the end of the day, they want to be noticed, whether in the moment they felt like their lives were going nowhere um, or they specifically wanted people to remember their name because they have felt um, harmed or some sort of injustice was done against them. 
Um, so, and, and especially as we look at um, the incidents of these that younger that are, or that are specifically uh, targeting educational facilities, there's, there's definitely a trend or at least a, a high correlation there between their attacks and seeking some sort of infamy or, or recognition along with it. And then another thing that we see, and, and this is also true of suicides, especially if you look at um, if there's a suicide within a school or within a community, you'll almost see multiple suicides or a heavily increased risk of other suicides happening. This phenomenon you see with the shoot events is it almost inspires other shooters into action. Um, it creates this cascade. And as they see people getting more attention, um, as they see that, hey, this person did this attack, here's how I would do it better, or here's how I can one-up them. Um, so that, that those are kind of the things that we're seeing within the field that really we have started to advocate to minimize saying their name as much as possible from showing their picture um, because we don't want other people to be inspired to repeat their actions. So if, if we have, sorry, I didn't mean to, to jump in. So I knew you were going to say something. I no, no. Yeah, no, go ahead. Off of the past. Your thing, then I've got like, I got a whole laundry list here. So how, how can we use this information to mitigate or even prevent these incidents in the future? Is there any sort of, Basically, I guess what I'm asking is, this is what you do, at, you know, as the director of the Camp Safety Alliance, you you go to schools and give them threat assessments and help them develop these plans. What does that look like, and how how do you how have you figured out what to do? Well, there, there's different models. When we talk about emergency management, there's essentially different phases. Um, there's preparedness, mitigation, uh, response, recovery, and each of those phases, they, they tend to overlap with other phases. However, um, a lot of times there's specific things that we do within those. So when we're talking about prevention, what we're really talking about is identifying students that are high risk um, of harming others or harming themselves and supporting them and getting them support before they get to a crisis. When we talk about um, mitigation or preparedness, what we're really talking about is infrastructure improvement. So whatever the hazard or emergency is, we try to um, change our infrastructure or our policies to help mitigate um, the impact of that disaster or that threat. So when I'm going in and I'm working with a school or even outside of schools, we're, we're trying to figure out what their goals are, what the gaps are in relation to whatever hazards or threats um, have been identified and how do we address those things within the means and the available resources um, to that organization. So let's, let's talk about what um, are the availabilities. I, I was going to go off on a complete tangent. So actually, thank you, Derek, for interrupting me. <laughs> um, so what what are the technical options that we have in place today or that we have available to put in place and what are the impedances to making that stuff happen when when you're asking about technical are you talking more like physical tangible things 
that yeah, physical, do. tangible things. So obviously, you know, 20 years ago, uh, everyone was all up in arms about, uh, you know, certain high schools would have like metal detectors. You couldn't come on campus uh, without passing through a metal detector. And then later on, you know, we've got other things like, um, you know, safe rooms and, and, and lock procedures and, and things like that that have happened uh, in the days since Sandy Hook and Parkland, et cetera, right? So, you know, it, it's been a progressive move forward, but it maybe has not happened as fast as we want things to happen. But in some cases, maybe it's happened faster than we wanted to happen. And so I was just asking, um, you know, what wh what kind of things that you think are um, effective and have put in, uh, been put in place on a large scale? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what we tend to see and what we've seen really, you, you know, Columbine was the um, Hurricane Katrina. It was the 9-11 of school safety, especially in terms of active threats, right? That's when, even though there had been multiple um, school shootings before that, in fact, not more than a few months before that, there was a school shooting that more or less inspired the, those shooters where the, the shooter actually wore a trench coat himself. Um, so going back to the previous question, we see a lot of copycats literally in the way that they dress or they act um, as well. But um, Columbine set us down this path where we're like, okay, this is truly something we need to examine. And the unfortunate part about school safety and specific to targeted attacks is a lot of times we do things within communities or as a nation that's just a pure knee-jerk reaction. And we're looking for a quick fix. And really what it is, if we're being honest with ourselves, it is measures that we can observe and that we can see, whether it's as educators or students and parents, and they make us feel good. Um, best example I can give you is putting security cameras on a campus. Security cameras do absolutely nothing during an active threat, just based off of how quick and violent the events are. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is a perfect example, actually how security cameras can impede us from stopping the threat and saving lives. Um, during Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, they tried to access the live feed security cameras, and it wasn't until about five minutes in that they realized there's the escaped campus. Um, so what we have to be careful of is that, um, we're not just jumping right into things that we're actually aligning our policies and that our infrastructure investment to what the evidence and what the best practices say. Okay. So you mentioned the Parkland shooting and that's the one I believe where that deputy essentially waited outside, um, because of your experience, you know, not just with the emergency management side, but as a nationally recognized law enforcement instructor, what what happened there? Was he was he being a coward? Was he trained to do that? Are law enforcement generally trained on how to handle these situations properly? Um, what's what's your perspective on that? This is definitely a huge gap in in a an area specifically where we just need to be honest with ourselves. Um, law enforcement is extremely undertrained when it comes to responding to an active threat. And 
what we have to understand about law enforcement is that traditionally, so we're talking about pre-Columbine, um, it was your tactical officers, it was your CERT team, your SWAT team uh, that responded to these high threat incidents. And what we know about active shooter incidents as we understand them today, especially after two decades of specifically gathering this data, is that we don't have time for those special operators to get there. And those have historically been the individuals that are trained in the tactics and have the equipment um, traditionally to respond to these threats. But it's those frontline officers that are overwhelmingly the first officers on scene making contact with the threats if if the attack hasn't already ended uh, by the time they get there. The Parkland incident specifically and the reactions of the SRO, I believe from a firearms trainer's perspective, if I'm truly taking my emotions out of it, that that officer is an incredible case study in the physiological and psychological effects of stress and especially in a life-threatening encounter what can happen to us and the limitations on our ability to make decisions and respond um, when we haven't trained or prepared ourselves for those incidents so those kind of two concepts that you just talked about they really collide at that moment because there is a lack of training that officer 100 percent failed in in doing his job and upholding his responsibility. And I don't want to minimize his individual decision-making. However, there is a lot more internally at play than I think most of us understand that'll happen during a life or death encounter. So how, how can law enforcement be better trained to respond if waiting for the SWAT team isn't the option what what should they be doing? What what's the process that should be employed by these agencies? Um, so this is the conundrum, and it's actually the same conundrum I work with when I go in to support schools. Is that there's limitations on who is available during certain times because they're working shifts. What is the money available? Um, there's so many factors that impede the ability for these agencies to really have training that is effective in preparing their officers. Um, but I think something that we at a minimum could do as a nation is there, there is no national standard for training for school resource officers. That's something we can attack. That's something we can address. And that's something that we can support where it doesn't require all of um, the financial obligations or time obligations of training an entire department. So we could set a standard. Hey, if you're going to be an SRO in the United States, uh, you need to go to a certain amount of hours of single officer response. So how do I, by myself, clear an entire building, locate the threat, make contact, and neutralize that threat um, whatever that might look like in a moment. That's something that we can specifically address. Um, and that is within our reach. So that is really, really interesting to me on a couple of different points here is that, um, you know, in my experience, people that are working SRO duty are the people that 
don't necessarily qualify to even be on a beat um, as far as like, you know, patrolling the streets. So they end up in an SRO opportunity, which is nice because great, you've got a uniformed police officer on campus, but it's also uh, not so great because, you know, this is the potato that you've just put into a potentially bad situation and are expecting him or her to rise to, you know, some level of obligation that would never be required of a beat officer. So, you know, that, that is my first kind of uh, thought along that uh, line. So uh, I'll give you a chance to. Yeah, I, I think it depends. I, I know that I've spoken to officers where historically that would be accurate. Um, and I don't doubt by any means that there's some department um, that pass the lemon on to the local high school, right? Uh, however, I know some phenomenal officers that are just, they truly embody the warrior mindset. Um, they're, they're lifelong learners. They're tactically proficient um, that are SROs and that have been SROs for many years. And that's just where they found their calling. Um, so I don't know if that statement is as true now as it might have been two decades ago or even a decade ago. Um, I don't doubt, just like anything, that there are people who look at the SRO job as, as a cush job, as a safe position, and they're not there with the same intentions um, that other officers might be. Uh, you know, a, another thing around this conversation, and we're actually seeing this playing out live right now um, with the movement to, um, you know, re reform police officers and their roles within our community is we see a lot of schools pulling their SROs where I actually believe there's a bill up in Illinois that would prevent officers from being on campus unless they were specifically there responding um, to a crime or um, to some sort of incident. And I don't think people understand the tremendous role and responsibilities that SROs play beyond the possibility of having to stop an active threat. I mean, they, they are force multipliers through and through on a campus. They're assisting those administrators. They're assisting the teachers on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think because this has become such a political conversation and so polarizing that those people that aren't on campus and understanding the role that SRO has, um, I think they're missing something big. And I would also say that if we want to focus on police reform and community um, policing and building those relationships, my God, what would be better than having an officer in the schools to be able to interact directly, to listen to those people of that community, to, to help overcome some of those biases or concerns that, that are there on both sides. Um, I, I think it's something that, that we're failing at, uh, not understanding the true impact SROs can have beyond the need to stop a critical incident. So my first question there would be, why are we kind of segregating them and calling them SROs 
instead of just calling them police officers or law enforcement. You know, like the the language that we use is, I I think, you know, me personally, I think the language that we use in these uh, kind of um, situations is really important with respect to, um, you know, public relations and what the community thinks about what is actually happening here. Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair point. Um, so I would have to personally do some research on where the term school resource officer came from and, and why that term for, I think for me, if I hear police officer or cop, um, that has a much different connotation and I get personally get a different feeling from those titles than I do a school resource officer. I, I think it's a, um, yeah, the, the, the school resource officers aren't just there to be police officers. They're there to give talks on school safety, on drugs, on a whole variety of things. They're meant to be a legitimate resource, like Morgan was saying, for the administrators and such. Oh, they, they um, act as school counselors. They act as mentors. They act as mediators. Um, they, yes, they fulfill a law enforcement role. But that is such a minuscule part of their day to day um, on a campus. So one of the, one of the things you talked about earlier was you know school budgets and being and as as an emergency manager um, when you're doing these threat assessments, figuring out a way to work within their budgets. Um, it sounds like there's a fair bit of scholarship and 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 scientific research in this area. Have you seen schools adopting these evidence-based practices? I, quite the contrary. When, when we're talking about school safety and, we're, and when we're specifically talking about um, an active shooter threat, preparing a campus, and when I say preparing a campus, that doesn't just mean physical infrastructure, but that means uh, conducting training for staff, conducting training for students, um, um, having drills, it's almost as far away from the evidence as, as you could go. So, you know, I think everybody's heard of run, hide, fight. Um, and, and to that effect, I've seen all sorts of things, little devices, you, you slide over a door, slide under a door, and it makes it unbreakable, um, different types of improvised weapons. Um, is there any evidence for any of that? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. So, one of the challenges that I face within this field and, and especially dealing um, not just with schools but with the communities is the, the question of are these programs specific to active uh, shooter threats on, on campus, are they even necessary? It, you know, there, there's data out there that'll say you're more likely to get struck by lightning um, than be involved in, in a school shooting incident. And what I see as a researcher is a lot of fake science, a lot of bias, overwhelming bias um, in some of the research that's available, which then leads us to exactly what you're talking about is, well, what is the best practice? Do we even need to have these things? Um, what, what are the best programs? Is, is something like run, hide, fight even viable? And here's what we know, okay? Since 2000 
to present, and this is according to the FBI, they produced five reports um, titled active shooter incidents in the United States. And then they're for certain years or multiple years, these five different reports, but essentially it's 2000 to present. Um, there's been 44 active shooter events on uh, pre-kindergarten to 12th grade campuses in the United States. In those 44 incidents, there have been um, 98 people killed and 149 wounded. So that encompasses um, 79 students killed, 19 staff, 126 students wounded, 23 staff. All right. You spread that out over 20 years. And if you're getting an average per year, those numbers, they go down. But here's what people need to understand is that since the year 2000, there have been more of our children killed during active shooter events in our schools than every single natural disaster combined. When we're talking about when our students are in schools, okay, they are more likely to be shot by a fellow student than they are to be killed during a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, a wildfire, you name it. Not a single student has been killed in our schools from a, a fire or an earthquake or a, a hurricane since before 2000, but let alone since 2000. There's been 11 students killed from tornadoes um, from 2000 to present. So as an emergency manager, if I'm doing a risk analysis, there's two parts to that equation. The first part is, what is the frequency? What is the likelihood? And if we look at active shooter incidents, they're a statistical anomaly in terms of how likely they are. And a lot of people, when they say, well, we don't need these programs, it's never going to happen. They're only looking at part of the equation. The second part of the equation is what are the consequences? And right now we're talking specifically about the loss of life or physical injury. And there's no question that we will not face another threat or hazard that has greater consequences than an active shooter event. So the question of whether or not these are necessary, should we be having these programs or creating protocols? That answer unequivocally is yes. And as a researcher, that leads me to, my, to another question, which is, well, if we have thousands of earthquakes a year, right? If we have hundreds of tornadoes, if we have hundreds, if not thousands of wildfires across the United States, and they do not kill or injure nearly as many students while they're at school than active shooter events, then what's the difference? And I start to go down a list. Well, we have code requirements for infrastructure. We have training. We have drills. And so this is where we begin the conversation from an honest evidence-based perspective. If we accept the fact that these drills and training and preparation are necessary, now where do we go? So my next question here would be, uh, we talked, uh, you know, at the very beginning, you know, about 30 minutes ago about how, you know, kind of uh, the movement doesn't want to recognize these culprits by name because we, we don't want them to have uh, the kind of um, notoriety, notoriety, right. That is going to cause copycats. Right. So if, 
if we're already not naming these people, right? So when, why are these things continuing to happen? And, and that's kind of a two pronged question. And so, you know, I know like you're, you're already ready to go with an answer. So, you know, part of it is in my mind that number one, we're opening a door for someone to actually become even more notorious. And part of it is that we're also providing a challenge, um, you know, that doesn't exist elsewhere in nature, right? So when you can't really compare a mass murderer to a tornado, right? The, the tornado is, you know, you know, quote unquote, an act of God that happens. The mass murderer is, you know, clearly a psychopath that has a clear goal in mind. So, uh, and maybe I'm kind of going all the place here, but at, like, how how would you kind of differentiate that? No, I, I think it's it, it's definitely a fair observation, right? Um, my purpose of really honing in on that and that data specifically is that when when someone says that these things are, are so unlikely, um, they have to understand that because there's a human component, it actually makes them more likely to occur at that specific location at that time, right? Um, that's why the Secret Service, they don't use the term active shooter, they use the term targeted attack, meaning that that individual is targeting a specific location, uh, not necessarily a specific person, Although there are cases where there are specific targets in mind, but it's the location, right? Um, so you bring up a very fair point. There's thousands of earthquakes, but earthquakes don't intentionally target my son's school, right? Is what you're saying. So uh, it, it's important to understand, but that's where we have to be honest with ourselves. Because this is a human factor, we need to look at it from a different perspective and a different angle. We can't discount it because they are so rare, right? So um, I, I would also say that in the media, we are absolutely failing in, in not saying their names or posting their, their, their pictures because that's what the media does, right? If it bleeds, it leads. They want that that picture of, of that attacker just looking deranged um, and, and that's what they want. So it, it's as a culture, especially within the media culture, there has to be some sort of change or accountability in order to reduce the exposure um, and the potential notoriety of these attackers. So with, with things like a tornado or a wildfire or an earthquake, there's, there's signs that we can look to see and predict or at least recognize that it's happening early on so we can take those preventative measures. Is there any science on that yet for these mass violence incidents? What we know from resources like the FBI and the Secret Service, Secret Service has put out phenomenal studies um, asking the question that you, you just asked uh, in partnership with the U.S. Department of Education. There's also a group out there called the Violence Project um, who's doing mass violence research. They're, they're a phenomenal organization. Um, what we know is this, is that, is that there is no single profile for an active shooter, whether you're talking about a 
a school active shooter or an active killer in, in another sense. Um, but there's definitely, especially within schools, some high percentile data that can help drive us to understanding who maybe is at more at risk um, and what strategies we can do as educators and parents and, and friends and just community members in identifying those asterisk individuals and, and helping them get the support they need. So things like um, experiencing trauma within your life. So whether it's a, um, a divorce or the loss of a family member, having suicidal ideations or actually being diagnosed with um, uh, some sort of depression or other mental illness is, is also a high percentile factor. Um, feeling wronged in some way, feeling like something was specifically done against you. So having some sort of resentment against a group or a society as a whole um, is something else that we're seeing. So there, there is a lot of data out there about these common factors. Um, when we're talking about race or gender, overwhelmingly high 90 percentile. Um, in fact, in, in um, school active shooter events, there's only been a single female assailant um, in the past 20 years. And that was a unique incident because it was also the only incident within the past 20 years, according to the FBI, where there was two attackers um, during the incident. So we know white male is definitely a, a higher percentile, but it, it's not true across the board. Um, and, and to be clear, you're not you're not saying that people, you know, people that are, have depression, people that maybe fit some of those criteria, you're not saying that these people are going to be mass shooters. You're saying that these are people who could use some additional support and resources because most mass shooters have those traits. Would that be? Yes. Yeah. And and I appreciate you um, restating that in, in such an articulate way. Yeah. So it's not because you have depression or you're suicidal or you've had trauma, you will become, it is from doing these case studies and examining these incidents of, of, and especially the secret service, they look at incidents where an attack didn't even occur, um, and was, uh, thwarted beforehand, but these are just trends that they see where there is, um, these incidents there are these things happening in these individuals' lives, and um, they start to go down this path. So we now take that information as a community, and we say, okay, how do we identify if a student is experiencing these things? And the uh, Secret Service identifies, I believe, specifically 11 themes that we look for. So we know what these themes are. How do we identify students that are experiencing any of these things, how do we document it? How do we share that within a school? And now how do we support that student? And support might be as simple as having a trusted um, adult at the school that goes up and just says, hey man, how are you doing today? Um, so, so that's what we're talking about. When we talk about prevention, it's not stopping the shooter at the front door as he's about to open it. It's about supporting students before a crisis and and the beautiful thing about this is these same strategies we can use to also help support students who are thinking about self-harm as well so it sounds like there's a lot of great data 
supporting what we can do better in schools to mitigate, prevent these kind of incidents. In your experience, are schools implementing this? Or if not, what are some of the things you see them implicate or implementing and what's wrong with those? When we're talking about specifically prevention in schools, across the nation, the answer is no, because there is no federal mandate. There is no um, federal requirement for schools, for example, to have a threat assessment team. A threat assessment team is a multidisciplinary group that comes together to identify potential threats and then support students. So that would be like a school counselor, an administrator, possibly a law enforcement officer, a social worker, a teacher coming together saying, hey, we have this student here. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're hearing. Um, how can we support this person? That's what a threat assessment team does. There are states that do require threat assessment teams. For example, Texas, after the Santa Fe school shooting, which followed Parkland, they mandated threat assessment teams in every single school. So there are some states that are great models for us as a nation on what potentially could work, but there is no requirement. I, I think there's one thing all of us can come together in is that let's support students before a crisis. Let's get true prevention. How do we do that? Well, we require threat assessment teams and we give them the resources and the training and the systems necessary to identify those that are at risk and deliver that support. Um, but we haven't even gotten there. So we're, there's potential, but we're, we're definitely nowhere clear, uh, nowhere near where we need to be at. So if, if there's no federal direction or mandate, where do schools go to learn what they need to do in these situations? The, the thing is, is that there's so many resources out there, even at the federal level. The U.S. Department of Education um, has put out multiple reports, has, has multiple resources um, in collaboration with the U.S. Secret Service and um, the U.S. Department of Justice. There's a um, organization called REMS-TA, and they are a, uh, a federal organization specifically that has all emergency management um, information available for schools for free. There's, of course, FEMA. The, the resources are there. The problem is, and this is what I'm studying specifically in my dissertation, is that we all have different perceptions of risk. And our risk perceptions are influenced by our individual experiences, our individual um, exposure to previous risk or hazard, but also they're influenced by society. So um, our culture, our media, our politics, all influence our individual perceptions of risk. And I, what I overwhelmingly see within schools is that because of those outside social influencers, we are unable to come together to say, okay, this is the evidence. The evidence is clear. Or this program is a research-based and, and it's a um, it, it's a great framework for us to, to use. Let's just use it. We know what we want to achieve. Let's go achieve it. Our risk perception is so different and divided um, that we're just not able to get there. It's not, it, it almost goes back to, to um, a school threat is different than a fire. We can all come to agreement, right, on what we need to do to keep ourselves safe during a fire. 
emotion is taken out of it. But when we're talking about people intentionally trying to murder our kids in school, there's a lot of emotions there. And it's, it's preventing us from moving forward in a positive way. So one of the things that we had um, kind of discussed here uh, a few minutes ago was uh, the availability of um, training and the standardization of training. And, you know, I think there's something significant to be said that, you know, like if you're going to like a school in a little town in Nebraska with like 4,000 people, that your needs are not necessarily the same as if you're going to a public school in New York City. And like, so even though the principles may reflect adequately um, as far as what the threat is and how to handle it, um, when we're talking about percentage of threat, uh, I don't know, what, what do you think, Morgan? that the percentage of threat is for having one of these scenarios happen in like New York city versus happening in, uh, Peoria. Um, what is it? Iowa or Arizona or wherever Peoria is. I think there's two Peorias actually. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there are, there are two Peorias. Um, well, I'll hit on two points off of that. First of all, you're 100% correct that I'm not asking for, especially at the federal level, to come in and say, you will run your programs exactly like this. It, that doesn't work. Um, programs need to be community-based. They need to be site-specific. They need to take into consideration the student population, um, the culture of that area. That is how you implement effective programs. Uh, and I'll give you examples. One of the districts I work with in Southern California, they have a huge Armenian population. Um, in fact, there are schools where um, Arabic is probably spoken by the student, more students at home um, than English is. Uh, so there's unique considerations in how we present that information to that community. There's unique considerations to running drills. Because especially if they are families um, that have come from war-torn countries, and many of them are, I need to be considerate of that when I'm designing a drill um, and interacting with students. So you need to speak to those communities. How I would train someone in Nebraska um, is different than how I would train someone in, in New York City. But that's also because I'm self-aware as a trainer and i'm able to differentiate that message in terms of who's at greater risk well of course if we gotta have a higher um, population density and more schools and that increases the possibility of it happening but really what the data shows us i think that might be one of the driving factors on why this conversation is so hard is that many of these incidents, especially some of the worst incidents, so if we look at Columbine or Sandy Hook or Parkland, they're happening in very affluent, very white communities. Um, and I think that is definitely a phenomenon that needs to be explored and considered from a researched based uh, position.
So that's that's another interesting question. Um, and not uh, again. Apologies. Do, if I'm do you see to... my Do you see my challenge as a as a scientist or researcher? There's always an interesting damn question. It <laughs> yeah. never stops. That's just how Absolutely. it goes. So Morgan, <laughs> tell me about evidence based what evidence based and trauma informed means. It because you know it sounds like when you talk about we need to be considerate of the backgrounds of these these children when we're designing drills. Does that do those concepts play into that, and how how so? Yes, it's a great question. So, evidence based means that we are looking at scientific data. We're, we're looking at good quality scientific research in order to help us establish um, what is needed, what is best practices, uh, and what is appropriate. So, I'll, I'll give you an example. After Columbine, across the United States, we went to what's known as a lockdown-only approach. And what that means is if there was a violent incident on your campus, you would try to isolate your students from that threat, putting them in a classroom, locking the doors, trying to turn off the lights. Um, and what we've discovered over the past two decades, and actually closer to about the decade mark, is that lockdown was not enough. Um, and the reason it was not enough is because lockdown was never created for the type of active shooter threats that we actually experience. Lockdown came about in the late 70s, early 80s out of the LA Unified School District as a response to drive-by shootings. They actually used to hold, have drive-by drills at these schools where you would get back inside a building, turn off the lights and get beneath the window seals. There was no need to lock the doors because the threat was external. That's not the type of threat that we see in these incidents. What we see is that over 95% of these attacks are conducted by current or former students. And they manifest within what should have been our safe space. They, the shooting starts in the classroom or in the hallway or in the cafeteria. There is no place for you to lock down because there's no place for you to isolate yourself from that threat. They're already in your safe space. In 2013, the U.S. Department of Education um, published guidance that said lockdown's not enough. We need to explore an options-based response. And an options-based response, as an example, run, hide, fight is an options-based response. And what that means is instead of only being told you can hide underneath your desk and lock your door, you as an individual get to make the decision you believe is best for your safety, such as escaping campus or maybe trying to resist or counter the attack. Um, and since 2013, every federal, state, local agency says that we need to use an options-based approach. The challenge is what is appropriate for our students. And this is where we talk about trauma-informed. Um, and trauma-informed means we are implementing programs that mitigate or remove fear and or um, fear and anxiety and that we're considering how conducting the training our drills could have a negative impact on the students um, and unfortunately we have multiple case studies on what is not appropriate for example having someone dress up as an active shooter and go around campus or not telling people you're doing a drill and then having a drill and people think it's a real life event. 
um, or shooting educators with projectiles as a means of reinforcing um, you know, the need to try to resist the attack. The, all these things have occurred and they've done more harm than good and they've really set us back in terms of moving the conversation forward. When so, are schools getting this? You, you'd think that they would, as educational institutions, look for evidence-based and trauma-informed approaches. Where are they learning to do this nonsense? If So if I told, well, let me answer your question with a question. From a, a layman's perspective, who would you go to as an expert in preparing for an active shooter event in your community? Who would you direct your educators to? Law enforcement. Yeah, and that's the problem. As a law enforcement trainer, and I don't say this indicative of all law enforcement, but if I'm being honest as an academic and as a trainer, and, and I travel across the United States and not only train officers that train officers in active shooter response, but I present at law enforcement and educational conferences, um, we have put an over-reliance on officers for preparing educators. And this fails for two reasons. First of all, not all officers themselves are experts in active shooter preparedness or, or response. Um, so that, that's the first issue. The second issue is that not all officers are trainers. So they don't know how to design a training or a curriculum that meets their objectives of what they're trying to, what they want the learners to actually learn. And beyond that, not all trainers know how to train people outside of law enforcement. When I'm talking to educators, I have to change my message. It is not the same as me training a bunch of Marines. The words I use, the manner in what I present, I'll tell you now as a consultant, I would say 75% of my work is just getting buy-in, is getting the teachers to believe that not only is this evidence-based and appropriate, but they're confident in achieving whatever I want them to achieve. And the, the problem with just saying, hey, your local SRO or your local sheriff's department is gonna train your teachers is that they don't have that background. Um, in emergency management or active shooter response or even in adult education in general. And that's where we see a lot of these issues occurring. Um, and it's creating that negative impact where there's some communities that flat out say, well, we're not gonna do active shooter training because unions are getting involved because there's such physical and or emotional trauma, trauma happening. So my question would be, at this point, not if um, response to an active shooter situation uh, being trained in that is appropriate, but is it really necessary? You know, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier in the program, but if 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 we're having issues even being able to communicate the appropriate ways to respond to and handle these kinds of situations that we've already acknowledged are minimal at best in probability, then what is the point of even trying to do it? I guess that is my question. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a fair question. And, and I, I don't want to rehash what we already discussed, but it goes back to that only being half of the equation is that if 
if we if we know if the data says that our kids are more likely to be targeted by a fellow classmate during an active shooter event than all natural hazards hazards combined for us to just ignore that is is deliberate indifference you know at a minimum it is criminal you know at the worst it, it is for us to just to ignore the data is exactly the problem when i'm training really when i do any training in this manner when i'm talking about active shooter response whether i'm training a a kindergarten class or if i'm training law enforcement my true goal in that training isn't for them to walk away with these are the steps i'm going to do if someone starts shooting it is how do i develop a crisis mindset what information do i need to give them on how our minds and our bodies react during any crisis whether it's a car accident um, falling off of a ladder an avalanche 9 11 a school shooter what happens to us how do we overcome that process and start to make decisions based off of information and resources available and that's my goal um, so i i believe that there is we have an incredible opportunity to educate students and staff yes we're training for an active shooter drill but how do we develop a crisis mindset um, and i think that's how we change the conversation we, we take it away from the specifics of the event and we start talking about what we can do in any environment if a hazard or threat presents itself. So what would you do um, to help uh, you know, a new class to overcome uh, fight or flight and be able to make a rational decision in any situation that you would be training for. So I don't, I don't think we can necessarily train a way we're all going to react differently. Right. Um, I think the key is when we're talking about preparing, especially our students is, and even our staff is that we need to empower them and we don't need to restrict them. A lockdown only approach is restrictive. It's taking away your ability and your right to choose what you believe is best for your safety. So if I'm preparing staff or students in a school, what I want them to know is that they're empowered, that these are different options that we can take. And as an individual, you have the authority to take those decisions. Now, let's be honest, we're talking about kids' schools. So this is where we talk about age-appropriate conversations, right? A kindergartner, mm -hmm. a first grader, um, if there's a special education class, those conversations shift a little bit more, right? Yeah, they shift a little bit, right? Um, but when I talk about empowerment, okay, so let's imagine now that the normal teacher isn't there, but there's a substitute teacher. Have we supported those kids enough? and conducted our training or our drills or our conversations in a manner where that student is going to know that the substitute isn't aligning themselves to the same response as their normal teacher. Oh, and that is such a great question. Oh, that is such a great question. I was gonna ask that myself if you didn't bring it up. One of the things that you mentioned was that you are the, um, 
a director of Academic Grove, a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. What do what does what do they do and what are you guys planning? So Academic Grove came about as as I was working with schools and and, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but I just want to reiterate my, my wife's an educator as well. And she's actually an instructional coach. So she supports and, and coaches. She actually likes to call herself a cheerleader of teachers, which I think is an incredible title. Um, but that's important because when I started to work more closely with schools, um, I was exposed just to the culture of education and teachers in general, as well as the limitations of the bureaucracies that are within schools, right? So schools would bring me in, I'd start to support them. I would identify needs that they had, not just specific to active shooter, but just emergency management in general. For example, your PA system cannot be heard on a third of your campus, right? Or your teachers in the classroom have no way to communicate with administrators or other people on campus if there is a hazard. Um, oh, your teachers actually don't know that they have the authority to pull the fire alarm. That's a real thing, by the way. Um, so I would say, hey, uh, <laughs> you guys need to purchase X, Y, and Z, or I recommend you do this, or you need to do this type of training, uh, whatever it is. And overwhelmingly, again, just no surprise, well, we don't have the money, we don't have the resources, um, or we have to pick and choose between these different things. Well, so, so obviously there's going to be people out there that are way on board with saying, hey, you know, I don't want my kid's school to be a death trap, right? So, like, where do we go? Like, well, who, <laughs> who can we talk to? Like who, like, who can we give money to to kind of make these things start to work a little bit better because, you know. Right. Well, what – Traditionally, what happens is if a school wants to get money really for anything, but we'll talk specifically to school safety, they either have to look for grants, um, they have to cross their fingers and hope that the state increases their budget, um, or they do a bond initiative and they increase your property taxes and, and your sales tax. So my wife and I, as I started to work with schools and I'm, I'm just pulling my hair out, everyone's saying we want to do these things, but we just can't do them. And I my wife and I came together and they're like, we're like, Hey, let's just go do it. So we started academic Grove, which is an educational 501 C three nonprofit. And our, our mission is to support schools in funding, adopting and implementing evidence-based programs. And we do that through community-based measures. For example, we have an adopt a classroom program. So if we went into a school, and we wanted to help them make sure every teacher on campus got a radio. We would essentially say, um, you know, it's going to be f essentially $400 per classroom to get everyone a radio. And then we would go out into the community, specifically to businesses, and we would say, hey, adopt this classroom for 400 bucks. You can help these students stay safe and, and the staff stay safe. Uh, so that's what we do as a nonprofit is that we want to be able to support um, these schools. And, but we also want to advance 
evidence-based and trauma-informed programs. And the primary component we do that is through hosting our own K-12 keynote conference. Let me, let me ask you about that. Why, why do you have to host your own? Why can't, are there any conferences that are already out there? And if so, why can't you go to those and present? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, there's definitely conferences that are out there um, on the national level as a state level. Um, and here's what I found is that speaking at these conferences, what I quickly realized was two things. The first was that these conferences weren't really ran by or for the attendees. They were ran by and for the vendors, meaning whoever was hosting the conference, a, a conference makes organizations money. And I have no problem with that. That's a beautiful thing. What I have a problem with is that these conferences, especially educational school safety conferences, would sell a booth to anyone and everyone. It was, here is, I think you said the snake oil earlier, right? I'm going to sell you snake oil. Here's the coolest, flashiest new thing that you can have in your school. And there was absolutely no research or evidence that supported these programs. In fact, every single, or at least the vast majority of research that I have studied contradicts the needs for these things. Um, and then also what I found as a presenter was that I would go in and sit on other presentations and I'd be super excited. And it wasn't a presentation by a fellow researcher. It was literally a sales pitch by one of the vendors disguised as a presentation. The only people that were truly impacting the conversation for the most part were the keynote speakers. So we came together as an organization and we said, enough, enough is enough. We're going to host our own conference. We're going to call it the K-12 keynote conference. And we're going to bring in four to five of the leading researchers, the leading advocates in school safety reform. We're going to have a one day full impact conference. Vendors are not able to buy spaces to our conference. We're going to make it state specific so we can also help influence um, policies and legislations within those states to that reflect evidence-based um, practices. And, um, that's going to be part of our mission to go out there and, and reshape and change this conversation. So what, what's the status of that conference? Where, where's it at? Is it, do you guys have the funding for it? What, what can people do to help um, if, you know, they're hearing this and they want to be a part of uh, helping to revolutionize school safety? Oh, plug time. I love plug time. Plug time is good. Yeah, I got to uh, I got to get going soon so we're going on to plug time um so we launched our nonprofit last year and i don't know if you heard there was this crazy thing that happened called COVID 19 um so it kind of set us back a little bit right um, what? but I'm, what are you what are you talking about it's 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 amazing that it's even a thing um <laughs> no we uh, so we got kind of delayed we were actually working with schools at the time april march um, to go out and start to um, do our um, um, adopter classroom program. And of course, everything halted because of it. So January 8th of this year was the 10-year anniversary of the Gabriella Gifford shooting, the shooting which my mom survived. Um, and normally for our family, this is a time of reflection. Um, and, you know, it, we're thinking about a tragedy, but we're really thinking about it in the negative ways that it impacted us. So this 
year, our family took January 8th back and we launched a Kickstarter. The Kickstarter is for our K-12 keynote conference. And the goal was this, we needed to raise essentially $11,000 to host our first conference. And we crushed it. In five days, we raised more than $11,000. So our first K-12 keynote conference, it's gonna be, it's a virtual conference. Information is good for everyone anywhere, but the audience is Texas specific. So it's the Texas K-12 keynote conference. And that'll happen in um, May of this year is the target date that we're looking at. Um, And the theme of the conference is evidence-based prevention and preparedness strategies. And the reason we selected Texas as our first state to host a conference is because um, they have Senate Bill 11, which mandates schools to have threat assessment teams. And we believe that they're a strong model for the rest of the nation. So we wanted to present our researchers to them and be able to take their model and this conference across the United States. So we're extremely happy, um, not only that we met our goal, but that we are moving forward with the conference. And um, if people are looking to support that conference, they can go on Kickstarter. And if you just search K-12 Keynote, that's K-12, and then the word Keynote, we would love your support. And anything above our current goal um, is going to directly pay for the second conference, which we're looking to have in Arizona in August. Uh, anyway, Morgan, thank you very much. Uh, this has been great. I wish we had like another six hours to talk. Yeah, I know we, we kind of jumped around from here to there, but honestly, whenever I had these conversations, there's so many questions and sub questions to the questions, um, but that's good. You know, we have to just look at it and we, and of course I love it as a researcher um, asking those questions and trying to figure out where they come from or, or where do they go. So I, I appreciate you guys for having me on and taking the time and giving me the opportunity to, to talk about um, what we're doing at Academy Grove. I'm telling you now, I don't have small ambitions. We are going to change federal policy in terms of school safety. It's going to happen. Well, that sounds great. And uh, like I was trying to say before uh, Derek dropped, um, you know, I'm I'm in Texas. So I have three kids in Texas school systems. So, you know, it's, it's extremely relevant to me. So I appreciate what you're trying to do. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for having me on, and we appreciate you. Yeah, man. We'll talk to you. Okay. Bye. Right. Bye. Hey folks, a messenger here. We had a couple of technical difficulties there at the end of the conversation. Just to let you know, you can follow Morgan at Campus Safety Dad. Be sure to like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and at the Bullshito website where you can join the forums and continue to be part of the conversation.